Welcome to Martial Wisdom. Here you can listen to conversations on all kinds of topics related to martial arts. The topic for today's episode is, what is Budo? Joining me in this discussion is Joe Tambu. Before we get started, please consider supporting this podcast by liking and sharing it. If you're interested in even more content, please consider subscribing to the Spirit Aikido online program. I'm proud to announce that the program now has over 250 videos. Another option is to contribute any amount you like through the PayPal tip jar. Even small contributions are greatly appreciated. I hope you enjoy this episode. Now, on with the discussion. Uh, welcome back to the Martial Wisdom Podcast, uh, Modern Aikidoist Podcast. Uh, today, I'm thrilled to have, once again, Joe Tambu Sensei come on and, and talk about this great topic of what is Budo. Uh, it's, I think, one of the most misunderstood words, or at least disputed words, of exactly what it means. But it's close to all of our hearts as martial artists. We 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 look to the way of the warrior as sort of a a guiding light for us to advance our training. So I think this is going to be a great discussion. I'm thrilled to have you back. Thank you. Glad to be back. Always a pleasure talking to you. Yes, yeah, definitely a pleasure. Um, I will say that uh, I'm going to kind of let the cat out of the bag that. Uh, Tabu Sensei sent me a, a preliminary copy of his new book, which I, I started reading, which is on this topic. Um, maybe you could ex explain the book that you have coming out because it kind of sets everything in the tone here. Okay, thanks for the sale. I'll, I'll be able to do a sales pitch now. <laughs> sure. Uh, okay, the title of the book is Budo, The Art of Being. And uh, for me, I, I, I look back and this year marks 50 years since I put on a dogi. And I look back and I, I, I kind of never wanted to learn Aikido. I wanted to do Aikido. Mm -hmm. And uh, for me, I never really uh, formulated that in my head till recently. And I think that is the crux of all good martial artists. They, they don't look to learn. They don't look to, to play. They don't look to win. They look to do, or not look to do, they just do. And I think for me, this is what the essence of Budo is. To, to be a Budoka, not to, to learn to be a Budoka, but from the get-go, give it your all, be passionate about it. And if that's not Budo, then I don't know what is. Sure. Sure, we can break it down. And, you know, so Bu as in uh, warrior, Do, the way of the warrior, etc. Yeah. But if we lived and conducted ourselves like warriors of old, we'd be in prison now. This is true. You know, uh, Musashi, for, all, for the great swordsman that he is, by his own account, he was a psychopath. He killed his first man at, as a teenager. Do we want to emulate that? Do mm -hmm. we want to, our kids to emulate that sort of behavior? No, but we can learn from it. Mm -hmm. And we can walk in their footsteps but create our own path. Sure. And for me, that, that's what Budo is. And, and that's a, a great description of it. You know, and I, and I think that almost every martial artist has got some variation of what they believe a Budo is, in, or at least is to them. And it, it's totally valid that people have slightly different ways because uh, when you talk about a Do or a Wei, it is going to be slightly different based on an individual. So similar to a musician, 
you know, a ja the, the life of a jazz musician would probably be a little different than the life of a rock and roll musician, but they both, music is their path. Um, and, and as I break down the, the boo part, the warrior, I think that there's uh, some common, um, I guess, perhaps different perspectives on what exactly defines what is a warrior. And, and I, I like how you go back to the, you know, what is, what is a warrior of, you know, 400 years ago or 600 years ago versus what we view a warrior as today. And as I was preparing for this episode and, and even thinking about this topic uh, for some time, it, it came to me that a lot of people will attach one of three um, basically descriptors to what a warrior is. And the first one is they view it as a soldier. And that is somebody who's in an army, whose job it is to take life. They, they, their art is the craft, their craft is violence and, and they're good at it. Um, or maybe they're not good at it, but that's their profession. And then the second one is the fighter. And the fighter seems to be interested in learning the fight. His craft is, is, the, is, is a fight. And you could describe that as, as a, a you know, sport fighter who, unlike the soldier, is not in a life or death type of uh, realm, but he still has to perform physical violence as his profession. And, and I guess the third one would be kind of the warrior. And this one is the one that's toughest to kind of pinned down because you know you go back to uh plato and whatnot and they they had that view that a warrior was part scholar like that the ultimate uh person or human being was that combination of a, being a fighter uh, versed in in understanding violence and they they really admired the physical culture and wrestling was a big part of uh, ancient greek culture as well as being a scholar being wise enough to understand when violence was not the answer. And, and I think that goes through uh, the ages when, uh, you know, back up into the 1800s when it became popular to view samurai as a, these warrior scholar type people and to view, you know, medieval knights as with their, their code of chivalry as being warrior scholars. When in fact, in true history, knights of medieval Europe were anything but like Musashi, they were killers. And they, they had really only one part of, of, of the code, if that you could call it a code of chivalry, which is basically don't betray your king. That, that was kind of it. After that, do whatever you want. Kill peasants. And, and like, yeah. And like the mafia, that, that never held true either. Right. Loyalty. Right, exactly. And that was on a precarious ledge. And I think the samurai were, had a similar... Um, truth to them that they were the warrior class of japan and they had very little to answer to except for their loyalty to their to their sovereign lord um, there, there was a, a series on netflix recently about samurai the the the, uh, the age of um, when japan was bu building up into the tokugawa era mm -hmm. and uh, the lords there would make judas look like a uh, altar boy there was so okay. much betrayal, backstabbing. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, people were going into into battle, pledging support, but at a crucial time, not committing their troops. Right. Judas was an altar boy compared to some of these lords. <laughs> it's true. It, it was a brutal age, and it, it's funny to me that both in in Japan uh, with the with Bushido, the the code of the 
warrior way of the warrior and then the code of chivalry in Europe, they almost echo each other perfectly where the reality of history was the, the, the warrior classes of, of all of those cultures were quite brutal. They were on a precarious ledge of loyalty. There were always betrayals. There were always uh, brutalities um, that are that were true. And then there was a time when suddenly there was this romantic uh, influence that came as, as people look back in history and they, they romanticized these, these warriors. Um, and in Japan, if I remember right, there was a book written in 1899 called Bushido, the Soul of Japan, which described this, Bushido, this code of Bushido, uh, the virtues it listed out the seven virtues of, of, of Bushido. And it became like this identifier of the history of Japan that was not accurate, but it was very compelling. Like it really drew people into this image. So I'll make an observation here. Mm -hmm. Uh, yes, you, you, you're right about it being romanticized and the why is important. But mm -hmm. before that, you notice how all the, all the knights who are poets and um, intelligent and, you know, literate, the samurai who were scholars as well, were all rich. Mm -hmm. yep. The same with the Greeks. The foot soldiers were carrying spears. They were farmers. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, in, in Japan anyway, around the Meiji Restoration, they wanted to imbue people with this uh, sense of uh, Yamato Damashi, the, the Japanese spirit. Like mm -hmm. you said, the soul of the warrior. And so they gave peasants uh, a second name, a, a family name, which they never had before. Mm -hmm. Like they, they almost like Westerns, Western movies, uh, you know, the, the Westerns with gunslingers. They romanticized right. the roles of those people and gave the everyday peasant a sense of identity, a sense of pride in their history, when in fact they had none. Right. So the why was important. They, they needed the masses. Mm -hmm. They needed to mobilize the masses. They needed to say, take the power away from the warrior class. So they just changed. And, and the why is like, you know, so important. Sure. And, and I can see that, that even though it was, a, it was a romanticized influence, you, I think that there is, a, there is great relevance to those virtues. And I, this goes back to the scholar side that, that Plato and Aristotle would talk about of having to have a balance of mercy and kindness, uh, benevolence to that sense of justice of what is right and wrong, the intelligence to understand a situation you're in and make evaluations of, of morality or ethics and to be able to do so wisely. Um, I think that that balance is because the warrior has such, he has the, the capability of violence. He can enforce his will. And I, I, I thoroughly agree. Journey. I thoroughly agree with you, but mm -hmm. let's do it with eyes wide open. Sure. Let's not, let's not be, you know, romanticize the history to mm -hmm. to a fault it, yeah i i believe in in those virtues and i try and live up to them emphasize the word try um but i understand where it came from the reason for it and i yet and yes i choose to subscribe to it i can uh tell you some really not so complimentary stories about some of my teachers mm -hmm. without 
uh, lowering my respect for them. Sure. I see them as human beings. I don't see them as gods. I see Budo as a code of ethic, a code of conduct. I don't see it as a religion. So Absolutely. I subscribe to it, but eyes wide open. Yep. Yeah, it's very well just, said. And it's easy yeah. to let that romantic vision tw twist and turn into a cult or into a pseudo-religion uh, where, and, and this is something that I've, I've just spotted with many religions, is that they tend to attach an amazing amount of guilt uh, and they put a, a pressure on people to say that, you know, you're not good enough, you have to prove yourself, which, you know, no matter what ideology that you are interested in, whether it's a philosophy or religion, you, of course, want to do your best to try to, to be a good ambassador for that ideology that you, that you embrace. But to say that, that uh, you know, you are pursuing something that is supernatural and beyond the ability for you to, to be a good representative and to bear that guilt. It's almost like you're embracing a negative rather than pursuing the positive. Um, and you know what, if that works for you, go for it. <laughs> right. If that uh, works for you, you know, go yeah, for it, it. It can, like, can go very bad if it goes bad. Um, yeah. And if you're gonna model your, your karate after uh, Elvis Presley, great musician <laughs> that he was, then, then <laughs> you know, God love you. <laughs> You know, no, if you're right. going to model your your martial arts after the Marvels, you know, the, the superheroes from Marvel, you know, lovely, go for it. Uh, sure. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not Joe Rogan. I'm not going to slam you. Go for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Couple of things though. Yeah. Just mm -hmm. going back to what you said a while ago, you you mentioned two words, path and journey. Mm -hmm. And this might be semantics, but uh, the, the, the path we were walking on is Aikido or Budo. That's our path, right? But our journey is individual. If we're both walking on that path, you and me, Tristan, and you look left and I look right, our journeys change. Mm. We, we're taking different sceneries. We, we're affected by what you saw on the left, I saw on the right. So our journeys are very personal. Very the much path so. is what we choose to do. Mm -hmm. uh, so you know it might be semantics but it's something people need to remember your journey is your own your mm -hmm. teacher's journey is not yours your teacher might guide your journey but or set the path but you walk it and you create your own journey yeah that's very true and you know i think when you say that one of the things that i that came to mind is how many of the uh arguments and bickering uh, in martial arts that I've seen over the years, both in person and, and online. And it seems to me that, you know, you and I walk a similar path. We look a different direction. We see something a little different. And now we turn back and do one of us judge the other for having a different perspective. And I think we've entered an era of humanity where, where judging others be, is, has become fashionable. And I don't think that that being quick to judge is is a wise thing. It is. I think it's a, a mind trap, and it's meant to initially make yourself feel superior to others by making them look uh, diminishing them in your eyes. Say my perspective is superior because this is what I've observed, and what you've seen is different and not as good as what I've seen. And I, I think that's a false path. Um, you, false. you touched a raw nerve in my tooth, then. <laughs> I'm not a dentist. <laughs> I, I, look, I, I have an issue because 
by that same token, people use uh, obvious examples that they think are inferior to support their view. Mm -hmm. So, for example, um, you know, uh, not to get political or whatever, but uh, they disparage uh, someone. Uh, and so, look, how do I say this? Okay, people say I'm gonna I'm gonna pet hate. Okay, people say uh, the Aiki can that most Aikido people do is bullshit, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Hey, if you think that, that's fine. Not a problem. I, I probably would agree with you anyway. It's very basic, rudimentary. You want to let real sword go to real sword teacher. But if you're using the basis of uh, Eido to say Aikido Ken, Aiki Ken is bullshit, then there's a flaw there. Because a lot of EI is done from Caesar, drawing a sword in Caesar. No samurai sits with a sword in their belt in Caesar. Mm. You walk into someone's house, you walk inside, you take your sword out. You leave your sword in, your intention is to use it. And you don't sit in Seiza if you're going to use it. And you cannot do anything on the ground in Seiza with the sword sticking out of your belt. So the basis of your uh, argument to slander something else is false. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm making sense. If you want to call something out, that's fine. but. Mm -hmm. Don't use something that's not quite right to say something else is wrong. Sure. And that's pretty. I, I'm not sure if I'm, I'm drawing the parallels. Yeah. And, and one, of the, like one, of the, one of the big things about Budo, and this is something we all have to uh, come to accept, it's full of contradictions. Mm -hmm. Just like life. And, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with contradictions. The, the problem is because of contradictions, we get paralyzed by an analyzing analyzing things too much paralysis by analysis, because it's analysis paralysis yeah. 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 yeah so you know accept the contradictions but don't let those contradictions become hypocrisies sure that, that's where we all have to watch ourselves and i'm very i try not to i i think i'm a hypocrite and i hate myself for that but i try not to be i mm -hmm. i walk a fine line because there are contradictions you know, mm -hmm. the, uh, Aikido, the art of love and harmony, and, and we're smashing people into the mat. Mm -hmm. uh, with love, of course. Um, so, you know, oh, there's contradictions there. There's, there's, you can legitimize it any way you want, but there are contradictions, and we live with that. But then to become hypocritical and point the finger at someone else when we ourselves are doing stuff wrong or questionable, that's something else. Yeah, and it strikes me too that intent has a great deal to do with it. Um, for example, let's say the two of us got on the mat together and I saw the way that you did a particular technique. If my intent were to say, I want to prove that I know more about Aikido than you do, and I'm going to say, you're doing this wrong, that yep. shows my my poor intent. Like there's there's a dark part of my heart that I'm now expressing oh. by, by trying to criticize you in such a way. And I find that to be a, a poison that, that is in a, almost every realm, not just martial arts or not just with an Aikido of, of kind of people struggling to make themselves look smarter or more experienced or, or more knowledgeable by, by doing that. Um, Being there, done that, guilty. Guilty yeah. as charged. Yeah. I think all of us have, have been guilty of that at, at certain points. And 
what I've found too is in this I got with with uh, you know coaching fighters for some time was to say let's we're on a journey of discovery let's let's share what we've learned and share what we've discovered and see yep. if we can advance ourselves and I, just like I'm certain if the, both of us got on the mat that you would show me things that I've never seen before and I would love it and probably vice love versa yep. and but that shows that type of attitude shows a, a brightness in in our hearts rather than a darkness of wanting to compare ourselves with each other or compete uh with with one another to prove who's better or who knows more or who's smarter does that so make sense i yes definitely i go back to the difference between a path and a journey right we're mm -hmm. both in the same path uh and and the path is aikido or budo whatever you want we're on that path because we have similar objectives similar goals, similar beliefs. And when you look left and I look right, there's small discrepancies, but those discrepancies, discrepancies or differences are smaller than what the shared common goal is. Mm -hmm. And that's why and we're on actually, the same path. Go ahead. You know, this brings me to like, what are some of the traits of a, of a warrior? Exactly. And, and this lands squarely into one of the first ones I wrote down on my list, which is they have a, a type of a leadership to them and and for that i, I go back to uh the heraclitus quote it says and i'll just read it out of my screen here one out of every 100 men 10 shouldn't even be there 80 are just targets nine are the real fighters and we're lucky to have them for they will they make the battle he says ah but the one one is the warrior and he will bring the others back and to me that's a testament to leadership and i think that just what we talked about a moment ago, which is, you know, we get on the mat, uh, you know, two, two Aikidoka uh, walking the same path, and one looks at the other and says, clearly, I have, I have a bit more experience than they do. That's your call to leadership. A leader doesn't berate the other person and rip them down to try to make them uh, feel small or stupid or inexperienced they say let me bring you up let me show show you a way that you may have not seen yet to make you even better and and i think that that to me that leadership part that mentorship part is a part of of warriorship um now that's not necessarily means that the warrior who does that is the best fighter but being a fighter is different than being a warrior um and same with a soldier so let's go back a little bit, right? And uh, the idealistic uh, view of a, a samurai was one, someone who was good with, a, with his hands, with a weapon, was uh, a humanitarian, if you want, when he was not taking heads off. He was a poet, he was a scholar, he was an administrator. So, mm -hmm. i.e., he was a whole man. Mm -hmm. And that's what, you know, if you look at the knights of the old, that's what they were purported to be. Good men, not just warriors, not just fighters. So that's, that's the ideal, I think. And I think that's what we're trying to produce today. Sure. So and the responsibility I, I, I teach, I teach of, kids, of law okay? enforcement, essentially. Yeah, I, I teach kids and um, you have to ask your parents, like, you know, do you want your kids to be like the the instructors in the dojo or do you want your kids to be thugs 
-hmm. Well, then if you want to be the kids to be instructors, like in the dojo, then there is some give and take. We can't just teach them how to rip someone's head off. We have to teach them passion. We have to teach them discipline, etc. And um, it's it's that for me that is budo. Budo has changed. We don't walk around with swords in our tucked in our belts. We walk around as men of honor or people of honor. And I think that's what we're trying to give to the next generation. Budo has evolved. Takeda Sokaku was a it was a nasty piece of work from what I hear. <laughs> from everything really I've heard, read, that's. It's yeah. consistent. Yeah. yeah. And I think if he walked the streets now, he'd be in jail. Would right, I right. want that from my kids? No. I want more restraint. Mm-hmm. No. Uh, you know, the, the, the days of when, if you looked at a police officer sideways and he took his truncheon out and cracked you on the head and got away with it, are over. Mm-hmm. We want police officers now who are humane, who can talk to someone, who can take someone down and pin someone down if need be. Mm-hmm. And finally draw their gun if they can't. That's the kind of person we want now. That's the kind of warrior we want now. That's the kind of human being we want now. Someone who's got dimensions and levels to them. Not just draw the gun and shoot someone or draw the knife and cut, uh, draw the sword and cut someone down because they looked at you differently. Mm-hmm. That, those days are gone. And uh, thankfully so. And I think that it shows uh, an advancement in, you could say, human enlightenment or human consciousness as we go forward through through the age, we're getting less and less savage and less and less brutal and learning how to, how to exactly as Plato would describe, of having that fighter and scholar in the same body, in the same mind. And, and you can have that um, potency of understanding the language of violence but yet have that tempered with when should you intercede or when when should you act and how should you act given a reasonable response or an appropriate response to a particular environment or situation Um, and i think that that balance is is what uh separates the musashis from uh, you know, a professional, not that Musashi wasn't a professional, he certainly was, but I would say he was just on that ragged edge of being savage. Um, yep. And versus a, a gentleman warrior who uh, doesn't fight for fun. And I'm not saying Musashi fought for fun, but very clearly he you was... You might be wrong there. It could, I could be. Um, but I would say that, that Musashi was a fighter primarily more than he was a warrior or a soldier. Um, and as I understand it, he, he went from, he was a Ronin for a while and he kind of jumped around. He, he was just a pu- pretty much a pure fighter um, from what I've seen of his personality or, or read of the accounts of his, his behavior. Um, and I'm certainly not a, a gentleman <laughs> in, in any respect, but Isn't effective that- and potent. Most, most of the uh, going out on a limb here, most of the Japanese teachers who taught my teacher were active during the Second World War. Okay. And they were not nice people. Mm-hmm. They experimented on prisoners of war. They did lots of things that they won't own up to. If you ask them what did you do, they said they were in the quartermaster corps. Mm. No one was on the front line. But they did some nasty things, nasty, yeah. nasty things. Yeah, uh, you know, people uh, 
idealize O Sensei. O Sensei mm -hmm. should have been hung as a traitor. If you mm. believe in the emperor, and I don't believe all that, but if you believe that by Japanese law, you should have been hung as a traitor because they wanted to set up an um, empire in uh, Manchuria. Oh, sure. So there was a lot of craziness going around. Mm -hmm. And after a while, these teachers settled down and became good men, but they went through some hard yards. They went through lots of turmoil in their lives and uh, they bettered themselves. You know, it's interesting you you brought that up because I remember reading an account and I'm trying to remember where where I read this. It's blank. I'm blanking on it at the moment, but they talked about the some of the the um, psychological conditioning that the Japanese would do with their uh, with their soldiers. And because there was a natural humane uh, instinct not to commit violence on another human being. And the Japanese wanted to try to get over that. And one of the methods that they used was they would bring somebody in and it was usually a criminal or, or what have you, but they would circle soldiers around him and they would start beating on him. And they required that the soldiers doing this start laughing and to, to start to desensitize themselves to the idea of harming another human being even with that close at close like hand to hand range as opposed to shooting shooting somebody but they needed to overcome that natural resistance of causing physical harm to another another human and they it was very successful the combination of violence and humor uh, or laughter did a very good job of of desensitizing the the japanese soldiers for to prepare them for battle and to prepare them to go into war and not hesitate to to harm other human beings um, Look, you, you said that, you know, we, we've come a long way. Uh, to quote Ben Harper, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I'm an optimist. I hope he's wrong. But we see in, in human involvement, uh, in human evolution, we see cyclical changes. Mm -hmm. So hopefully the cycles are going up, but there is always a downward touch to that, to sure. every spiral. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we're on the down and we get depressed. But hopefully hum humanity is spiraling upwards or cycling upwards. Mm -hmm. There's always a downside to every cycle as well. So we drop a little bit before we rise up again. Oh, sure. And I think it's the same with you and me. It's the same in Budo, same in martial arts. Uh, mm -hmm. Aikido starts to evolve and becomes a, a more passionate art with, with the way of being, the way of love, harmony, whatever. Uh, and then there's things that drag us down again. And hopefully we rise a bit and we go down. You know, everyone has to try and prove Joe Rogan wrong. Um, I don't, I don't, I've never listened to him. I don't mm -hmm. give a flying whatever to whatever he's got to say. Makes no difference. But growing up, I was always told Aikido was shit because I grew up in Malaysia and Kung Fu was it. Right. Around the time of Bruce Lee. Everyone was trying to kick and punch my head in as a kid because they knew I did Aikido. And then karate was it. After that was BJJ, MMA. Um, you know, so as we rise, we always get pulled down again. And we have mm -hmm. to prove ourselves. Maybe that's what keeps us going. I don't know. But we can't sure. get demoralized by that. And well, life we is life. To... We can't always keep that straight linear ascent going well we're always going to have plateaus we're going to have put uh, setbacks 
Um, that's it just happens that way. Um, and I think like humanity, we, we would like to advance a little faster than we actually can. <laughs> we have to be patient and keep trying, but realize that it will probably take longer than we, we would think we would like. Um, yeah. And, and in Budo is about growing. You, you said, what is Budo? Budo is about growing. Um, I had a teacher who once said to me, a true warrior can protect himself and his family physically, protect and look after his family and himself monetarily, emotionally. That's a good warrior. Yeah, Not I agree. In fact, fight. Yeah, yeah. You know, this <clears throat> for some time, um, I was always very active with with projects and I'd love I love working with other people and on you know functional teams and and things like that. And what I've found over the years is that there's kind of like three essentially groups or types of people when a crisis starts to happen. And there's the main group, which just, they kind of get confused. They had no idea what to do. And they sort of just freeze up like, or they just, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what to do. And they, they just sort of like deer in the headlights kind of thing. And then you get a smaller, slightly smaller group that panic and absolutely freak out. They just, go into hysterics, they start waving their hands around and whatever the crisis is, you almost have to get these people out of the way in order for you to solve what the actual problem is. And, but then there's the, what I call the crisis people. Those are the people that see a serious problem and they roll up their sleeves like, all right, we got to get this done and we got to, no nonsense, we've got to solve this problem because this could be serious if we don't get on this right now. And, and in my experience, that's a pretty small percentage. Like those, those good crisis people are maybe 5% or, or two to 5% of people. Um, and thankfully the hysterical folks are, are not in the majority, but I don't know, I'm, I'd guess maybe, you know, 20, 30%, whereas most, the vast majority of people are just like, I don't even know what to do. I'm frozen. I, I can't figure anything out. Uh, but this is kind of where I go back to that Heraclitus quote of what is the warrior? To me, that warrior is the one that brings the other ones back. He keeps his head when the crisis, crises happen. And how does he focus on saving the lives of his men and keeps his eye on the big picture and is able to focus when others are just losing their minds? Um, and, so and to me, that's another times, trait of the warrior. Nine times out of 10, how do you spot that crisis person? In, in how do you spot the crisis? Um, usually person, suffering. Yes. <laughs> Some kind of suffering is going on. No, no, no. The person, the person who comes. Oh, well, how do you spot the crisis? Forward. A lot of times, they until a crisis happens, you don't really know what they're like. They're pretty You're hopeless. Not sure. They're pretty hopeless without a crisis. Well, sometimes. Yeah. I mean, no, no. I, Churchill was. Sure. Yeah, I'd yeah, say it, Churchill no, was no, definitely a crisis they, guy. They, some people come to the fore under pressure. Mm -hmm. Without the pressure, they, they just, they, they're lazy. Or they yes. just, they take, yeah. you know, there's no challenge. There's no, they, mm -hmm. they need that spur. They need that pressure to, to push them on. And they do shine when that crisis happens. Yeah. Like they, they rise to it. And, you know, I've, I've seen many people that shrink from the crisis. And yeah. there's very few that, that that's when they do their best. Um, yeah. You know, in fact, I just got done watching, uh, it's not the series isn't complete yet, but it's that Joe Montana, Cool Under Pressure. Um, it's a 
sort of a biography of the career of Joe Montana, the famous 49ers quarterback. And, you know, they describe him in there where, you know, he, he was kind of undersized. He didn't throw very powerfully. He was kind of skinny. He was quick, but, uh, you know, he didn't show tremendous talent. He did not practice very well. And on his college teams and even on the, on his first NFL, when he was playing professionally, he, he didn't really stand out at all. And so he was the lowest, kind of the lowest last quarterback on the roster. But when he got out to actually play when it mattered, he would start generating these comeback wins. And he just had a, a, a laser sharp focus when the pressure was on. And that was the name of the series was cool under pressure. And I, I, I saw that to me, that is part of the trade of a warrior is that's when you shine the best is when you are under that pressure. Yep. And, uh, I agree hundred percent. Can, yeah. can I change the subject? Um, oh, sure. You, you mentioned the seven qualities of uh, Budo. The virtues. Yeah. The virtues. And where do they come from? That's a good question. Um, so I don't people, have a people firm say answer the, for the, it. The Hakama, uh, you know, the five fleets in front, two in the back, uh, mm -hmm. stand for the seven virtues, mm -hmm. right? Was that after the fact? Did I they bring out the seven was. virtues to fit the Hakama? Yeah. I, I, in fact, I've read accounts or, or people that have written, and of course, I haven't dug into this enough to really pin down what the, what the absolute truth is. But since the virtues of Bushido and virtues of Buddha, the seven, basically were a contrivance of somewhere between 1899. And I think this, they said the first mention of them in written language was somewhere around 1600. Whereas the design of Hakama goes back almost a thousand years. It would seem to me that the virtues themselves were kind of stuck onto the Hakama because they just so happened to have those seven pleats. And I, I, I believe I've read too that, that older Hakamas had different numbers of pleats, like the design That's was right. not was standard throughout a thousand years yep. Yep. or yep. whatever it was. So I don't know, it's, I, I think the, 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 the pleats to the Hakama, in my opinion, is probably more of a romanticized matching up. It just so happens to fit quite nicely and why not, if, it, if yep. it's true. It's a good reminder, if if anything else. Again, again, my thing about you know, uh, subscribe to it, but eyes wide open. Mm -hmm. And it's we 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 tend to when we want beliefs in something, we tend to accept it wholesale without without thinking about it. We we need Examining to think it, about yeah. it if we're going to let it uh, course through our veins and then guide us or. or mm -hmm. um, if you're a beginner and starting off, you don't need to question things. But mm -hmm. as you progress and this becomes your life, you need to ask questions. Not right. of others, but of yourself. Mm -hmm. And if you don't do that, you're never going to get any better. Mentally, physically, or otherwise, you will never get better. And the, the problem is that the first question everyone asks of themselves in any situation is how. Mm -hmm. when the first question should be why mm -hmm. so why did my teachers teach me this way why did they make me do this again and again this makes no sense um you know tension again you know it, it you know then if you ask yourself why before you go to change it some someone was talking to me and he said his teacher said that 
every day he got on the mat for the last 60 years, he had to conform the sword and the staff. He didn't change the movements of the sword and the staff to conform to him. He conformed to that. That was his discipline. That was his path. Mm -hmm. Because his teacher taught him that way. And until he understood it, he wasn't going to change it. And, and trying to understand it, even if one day you discard it, that journey of trying to understand the why will lead you to where you want to go. Sure. I, I, um, I, I don't, I'm not sure if I've told you this story before, but um, uh, I, I have this little thing about asking every top teacher I know, um, what's the most important thing in Budo? Going back to Budo again. And they said, uh, have I told you this before? I don't think so, yeah, but. And, um, and everyone, but without fail, everybody, and I'm talking about Don Draga Sensei, Obata Toshishiro Sensei, you know, uh, all the top teachers in the Yoshinkan, people I've met outside, and they've all said Reho, which is etiquette. Mm -hmm. And I was in a, a party in Japan and I met this old teacher, his name is Nishioka Sensei, he's passed away since, and he did Shindo Musaryu Jodo. And at the party, I said, Sensei, with the translator, can I ask you a question? He said, yes. And I said, um, what's the most important thing in Budo? And he said, to know who your parents are. And the whole party stopped. Everyone looked at him. And everybody, me included, thought the old man had lost the plot. Right? And he looked at us. And he said, with the translator, he said, if you know who your parents are, you know where you're coming from and you know where you're going you're going in terms of martial arts if you to know who your parents are is to know why a technique was taught to you in a certain way and that makes a lot of sense it does too many people, and i'm glad you brought that up as, as too you, many people don't know the why and they change things too early sure sorry go um, on. yeah no uh, because it, it kind of brings up that what you talked about earlier with the hypocrisy when you accept everything that you've been told as truth it assumes that everything you were told was accurate if you never question and figure out maybe there's there are beliefs that i have inherited or been taught and i repeat them because i i respect my teachers and my instructors and but there's a contradiction there and you never find it you won't ever find it unless you actually find out why you ask and you examine what you were told, not just accept it on, on face value. Now, like you said, as you begin, when you're in that, that shoe stage of, of absorbing, you accept what you're taking at face value. That is absolutely pertinent and gets you to a certain level of understanding where you can start to peel kind of the layers off the onion to say, why do I do this? Yep. You know, how exactly you start exploring more and maybe you find something within what you're taught that was a contradiction and you can resolve it, figure out why there's the contradiction was there and which is what of the two factors that are contradicting each other, which one is true, which, which principle is, is false and which is accurate. Um, and I, and it's easy. And I, and I see this with the, the Japanese and the Eastern uh, Oriental martial arts where there's so much, uh, adoration or worship for seniors that the the idea of questioning what you were taught is absolutely not acceptable and i think that that's 
almost a detriment, uh, not even almost, that's a detriment to, to the advancement of an art when it's treated with sort of a, a holy reverence that's, that's immune from scrutiny or, or asking why. Okay, I'm going to uh, take you to task on that one. All right. Not take you to task, but explain my point of view. Sure. I, I think that um, believing in your teacher is really important. And oh, it is. accepting what they say without mm -hmm. question is totally important. Mm -hmm. If you don't, find another teacher. Uh, I, I'll tell you a story. Once um, I was, uh, sorry, I, I'll, let, I'll rephrase what I said later, but I was teaching and I had a guy come from England and he was a strong, strong boy, really strong boy. And he stayed in the dojo and every class, he would just resist everything. Mm -hmm. And I, I, one day I got angry and I, I put him really hard down and I felt really bad. It wasn't pretty, it wasn't nice. I just put him down and finished the class. I walked off and a junior instructor called everyone. And he said, if you ask, does this work once or twice? That's fine, not a problem. Mm -hmm. But if you continuously ask, does this work? You need to find another dojo. After answering, does this work once or twice? Your mind has to change to how is this working? And for a junior instructor, that was really intelligent. Because mm -hmm. if you don't believe what's being taught there, don't go. And, and I agree I with that. And I, when I was oh, describing it, I didn't want to come across as, as advocating that everything you're shown at the moment you're shown it, you question, go, well, this could be bullshit or this is bullshit. What I'm talking about is as you as you absorb the, the, what you're taught and you start to get to more of that ha level, you start to see how do these things work together? What 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 of every of every concept that I'm taught is is there a possible contradiction there, or you run across a contradiction and you don't want to challenge either one, and you kind of back off of it, or you just accept, well, I've been told all this stuff and it must fit together. I may not understand how that sort of thing. No, um, I, I totally agree, and I was kind of playing devil's advocate a little bit. Sure, sure. I, the way I was brought up, um, very traditional way, and mm -hmm. in, in the dojo and outside the dojo, you, you could ask questions of the seniors, mm -hmm. but you could never question the seniors or the teacher. If you're going to question them, i.e. their personality, their character, go to another dojo. But you could ask right. questions about the technique, mm -hmm. and I believe that. I sure. think this is an integral part of Budo, where you have those levels of respect, and uh, without that, I think we're lost. But I agree, and, and, and I about, think that I'm there's... not talking about blind yeah. respect. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I've I've gone to dojos and then thought, I don't believe this. This is not for me. But I'm not going to belittle the instructor or, or... sure, it's not for me. I'll leave. Mm -hmm. I'll leave. I, there's no 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 point standing there arguing with them. You sure. do your thing, good for you. I'll go. Sure. And that's understandable. And to me, uh, separating the idea of judging or evaluating a person as their uh, the merit of their character is different from assessing, all right, what is the concept or principle that you have just described? You can challenge one without challenging the other. And yep. unfortunately, we're kind of in an age where it's very common to say, 
I, I want to challenge what you just said, because I think it might be inaccurate as being, I disapprove of your character and I reject you personally. And those are not the same concept. And it, it takes, I think, a certain amount of, um, what would you say, intellectual integrity, but it also takes separating a concept that, that you believe from your own personality. Like you, if you say something that's inaccurate and somebody calls you on it, you need to be able to, to say, maybe what I just said was wrong. Maybe the concept I believe or the principle that I think is right is not right. Maybe it's inaccurate without saying that's a criticism of me personally or my character. Um, and I think that that is also an aspect of being a warrior, of needing the virtue of honesty. And I think that that's part of, it's one of the seven virtues of, of Bushido. It's also one of the virtues of the code of chivalry is truth, is honesty. And Tristan, I, I, as, a, as a teacher in the Western world, I've had to answer questions all the time. Oh, sure. Right? Uh, and, you know, if, if I said someone strikes you block and they go, why? In Australia, everything's why. And I go, because if you don't block, you get hit. Oh, all right, fine. You know, you get questioned all the time. But as a student, I never asked a question because mm -hmm. for me, in my uncle's dojo, for me, training in the Yoshinkan, you were one of those students where you had to do everything right. And you weren't allowed to ask a question. There was no, it wasn't written anyway. You just didn't ask a question, right? And when you went off the mat and you were drinking with the instructor and you asked, if you tried to ask a technical question, they'd say, you should ask me on the mat. Mm. But on the mat, you're not allowed to ask a question. So for, for certain students, you have to figure it out yourself. Mm -hmm. Other, the, the general public could ask questions, could do everything, get away with it. But for certain students, it was unwritten rules. Like you can't ask a question, you just do. Figure it out, do. You can ask it of your peers, uh, but not of the teachers. I don't know why, but, and maybe I'm a better person for that. Maybe I should teach that way. But I had to think about stuff a lot. Sure. And maybe, you know, the, maybe the that, technology that of, of teaching path. is has advanced a lot in the last few decades. And this is a, a conversation that uh, discussion on the, the forum that just got fired up like yesterday. And because I've all the accounts that I've had of, of Morahai from the people that learned from him is he'd come out, he'd just he'd show a technique and then just say, go practice. So being a student meant that you were able to watch him perform a technique and then you go and practice and there was virtually no technical description or um, him describing what you should be trying to do or, or this, uh, any description of technique that was just the standard you were just allowed to view what he did and then try to copy it and then uh, as I understand it when Koichi Tohei uh, came to Hawaii initially to bring Aikido to the United States he did so through Hawaii he came across American students and they asked him why do you do, why do you do this particular thing or or how does this work? And he, I recall him, or at least this is how it was explained to me. He responded with, at first he was shocked. Like the idea of asking a question to an instructor was, that was just not done. But to Toei's credit, he realized that he just had very inquisitive students who wanted to understand what made things work. In fact, he appreciated that idea 
when he contrasted it to Japanese students who would not ask a question, they would do a bunch of repetitions, they were all wrong, but they kept, they just kept repeating it over and over and over again. And where I think that this is relevant is with more modern teaching methods, we've realized if somebody practices something wrong a lot, it takes a lot of time to reprogram them from all the repetitions they did that were bad. And so even Tohei, as I, as I it was, it was described to me, said that the perfect student is that combination of the both of them. His, by the way, his criticism of American students is that he loved that they were inquisitive and they wanted to understand, but they weren't dedicated excuse me, dedicated like the Japanese students where they would do thousands of repetitions. He said the perfect student, because Americans would kind of get lazy, they do a few and be like, okay, I think I got this. So the, he thought the perfect student would be the one that would seek the understanding, would ask the questions, would be thinking about what he's trying to do, and then have the discipline to do hundreds and hundreds of repetitions to burn in what he, what his understanding was. So I've, I've heard something not dissimilar uh, about Tohei-sensei. And he's a good example there. I think the Shola Gozo-sensei and all these people are in the same boat, especially O-sensei. Uh, someone explained things to me about, uh, in the Oshinkan, a lot of it's about focus. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we do blend, but it's not up there. It's not spoken about a lot. And he, this guy was talking to me. He was a... a an ex-Uchideshi of Toi-sensei, lives in San Francisco. And he talked to me about projection and blending. Blending with your partner, harmonizing your partner and projection. And I said, you know, how come this hasn't been explained? He says, well, Toi-sensei said when he first started, he couldn't explain it either. He had to go away and come back with the vocabulary. Mm -hmm. Vocabulary meaning the teaching methodology as well as the the words he said oh sensei did it but could not explain it and i think uh sensei was the same uh, one of the one of the senior teachers the yoshinkan said to me you know uh, how do you understand when the teacher says your power should be like whoosh <laughs> right you know oh your your power goes like pika pika in japanese that's the traffic lights pika pika power that's the words they use. They didn't have the, the vocabulary or the teaching methodology to do it. Uh, but yet, look at how many top students or sensei produced, mm -hmm. as opposed how many top students the Yoshinkans produced. And I think O sensei and uh, Shiragozo sensei had similar time on the mat. Mm -hmm. They both came from affluent families. They both had sponsors. You know, are, are we sure. teaching, uh, like your, the Yoshinkan system is very, uh, what's the word, logical and very technical. Mm. I, I keep asking, you know, am I teaching an art form in a scientific manner or am I teaching a scientific movement as an art form? Mm. I haven't come up with the answer yet. That's a good, that's a profound question. So, and, and I think uh, a lot of the teachers, uh, the, the, the problem with the Yoshinkan, as I see now, because it was so uh, set in its way, unless you do it that way, it's wrong. 
whereas with with uh, Osensei's style of teaching, you, you could do the prince as long as you practice the principles, it was okay. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, so, are, are we caught up in in the 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 form rather than the substance? And uh, well, I, I, that could be know. a whole nother show is, is the, the teaching styles of principle based instructors versus what would you call the other, the other, the technical, um, it's not really wouldn't be technical, but um, yeah, I'm not sure what, what the term would be for maybe the formula based instructor. Um, maybe, 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 but maybe I that's the term. Uh, a, a lot of teachers are really bad teachers. That's true. And one thing I wanted to mention about your point is having met hundreds, if not thousands of fighters and even really talented ones, some of them just have no vocabulary for to describe how they do what they do. It's not unusual. So it's I wouldn't assign any blame to somebody who has incredible talent but cannot articulate exactly how they do what they do. So so here here lies the problem. We follow all sense it was a natural. All sense it was natural. Shiroda goes all sense it natural. Right, we follow naturals mm-hmm. who picked it up quite not not easily, but they picked it up, assimilated it, and just could do it. Right, mm-hmm. we should be following people who had two left legs and no right who turned out good because <laughs> they had a good system. Sure. But we don't. You do know what? And I admire uh, the people that came from a teaching background. And as I understand it, uh, Kenji Tomiki was a teacher. I think he put together a pretty good organized curriculum and i and i know tohei did too i don't think tohei was a professional teacher but he took a teaching approach a systematic Mm. approach to try to convey and teach uh what made his his aikido or his interpretation of aikido powerful but i'd also uh, credit uh, jigoro kano for his organization of judo in the same manner um you can see that that teaching influence with those People and they and they were able to build a, a vocabulary and a structure that the talented, not so good instructor uh, instructors did not. Um, and it was kind of cool to see those cross those paths cross, like with Tamiki, who came from judo into aikido, but he brought in his his structured teacher uh, experience. So it, a good teacher knows their subject matter well. Mm-hmm. It takes three things to be a really good teacher. One, to know your subject matter well. Two, mm-hmm. to know your students well. And no one knows what the third is. <laughs> and I totally agree with number two. And, and if there was one thing that would often bother me about instructors is they don't want to know their students well. They don't care. And that breaks my heart. And it's, it's you have to. And I agree with that number two is knowing your students because that then you start taking on more of a coaching role than than an instructor's role and i I think that that comes back to our topic at hand is a good warrior will lead those that need the leadership i i believe in that too so i I always uh, i always modulate my words and my teaching to the to the audience Mm i have a very one of my best teachers one of my biggest influence says no he says i will teach up here and the student has to rise to that level i will not Mm. lower myself i will not bring it down you come up and Mm. he said things to me and three years later i've gone wow 
Sure. Five years later, I've gone well. But most people don't hang around long enough. But he's not interested in most people. He's interested in the people who are going to be like him or right. to that level. So, mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I cannot do that. That's not me, but that's him. Sure. I you know, and that, that remind, kind of reminds me of quality uh, I was talking about that unknown mm -hmm. because that attracts attracts whoever you're going to attract. That that third thing, that unknown sure. charisma, quality, whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, as you describe that, I, I remember hearing I saw a documentary of uh, Customato, who was a uh, trainer of both Mike Tyson and Floyd Patterson, oh, two yeah. world heavyweight champions, and he talked about almost exactly that of how he would look for a young fighter with that that spark and he it was had a hard time kind of describing it but he did better than most i think would of of what that spark was that made them want to want to win and be dedicated um he said a lot of young fighters even fairly talented ones did not have that spark they'd have you know toughness or they'd have you know, dedication, but there was something missing and he only wanted a few people, but each one of them needed to have that spark that he said he would, he'd fan that spark a little bit and the spark would grow hot and it would start into a flame and then he would fan it into this raging fire. Um, and I think that that is one of those things that a, that a warrior has that's different from just a fighter is the, that underlying passion to succeed and, you know, when you talk about, or when people talk about people like, you know, that are, that are moguls in business because they have that fire to, to conquer and to succeed, is that a warrior? Even though they're not dealing with, with hand-to-hand -hand combat or, or life or death type challenges. But I do view that a, a warrior does uh, attack immense challenges and almost lives to do that that's kind of what they what they are and i guess to bring this back around to the subject of the podcast is you know you have would that be any different from a teacher who wants to convey his art that he views his challenges to bring people who are interested in it up to a, a solid skill level and make them competent and make them a good representation of the art that he teaches um i i i don't know but let me let me put it this way right the, mm -hmm. the, if we think about uh, Budo dojos, whatever Budo is, our job is to build Budokan. Yes? Mm -hmm. Now, the top 10% are always going to be good, regardless of circumstances, teachers, etc., etc. Mm -hmm. The bottom 20% will never do anything. Mm -hmm. How much of that middle 70% can we make good? For right. me, that's the mark of a good system, a good school that middle 70%, how much of them can you push through? Mm -hmm. But that's then again, actually... there's other people who say, no, it's not important. It's that top 10%. Don't care about the rest. The rest just pay right. the bill. I refuse mm -hmm. to believe that. So, and, and I agree with you. And one of the things from a, a coaching or teaching standpoint, it's easy to teach those top 10% talented, driven. You just got to guide them a little bit when you're dealing with that middle 70% or even the bottom, that's when you, you, your challenge as a teacher comes in. Can you do that? And if you can't, if all you can do is kind of guide the really talented people, I, I think that there's untapped uh, teaching or coaching potential that's not being employed. 
And I mean, there's plenty of lazy instructors out there for sure. Um, Sorry, Tristan. But, yeah. Everyone listening, don't worry about that last 20%. That will drive you crazy. <laughs> let, let them leave them on the mats let them do their thing but don't worry about them that's sure. i'm just joking but that, that yeah yeah that 70 like you said you know if, if you have one great student then it's not you it's mm -hmm. the students right if you've got a fair percentage of good students then you've got a good school then you've mm -hmm. got a good system and i think yeah. that's our challenge as teachers Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, and I, I don't know a bigger challenge. Um, you know, they say teaching is the most uh, optimistic pursuit known to man. Okay. And, you know, because we're throwing out, throwing things out there, hoping people will latch onto it and take it. Sure. We just keep throwing it every day. Mm -hmm. But they also say that, a teacher is the only thing in life that you truly choose. Okay. You don't, you know, because every day you have to reaffirm that's my teacher. I'm going to study of that person. You have to oh, reaffirm I see. that every I day. See the point. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And, and you choose, you choose. And and that's why I go back to my the way I was brought up. I choose you as my teacher. I choose to come on the mat. I I don't question you. If I want to question you, I'll say thank you very much for your time and leave. Mm -hmm. that, that was the way I was brought up, right or wrong, you know, who knows? Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, you can get, even from somebody that you disagree with, or you see them showing something you have no interest in, what I've found is if you're there, you can at least listen and hear them out and, and take in what they want to show. Maybe that after you've evaluated it, you'll discard it, but you show at least respect by listening. And um, what was it? The um, I think Aristotle said it's the it's the uh, what was it? Um, he says it's a the trait of an educated mind that it can it can entertain a thought without believing it or something to that like without absorbing it. So of course you know in today's world we we are for, faced with hundreds of times a day where we see something and we have to accept or reject it, and that's it. Um, but I think with, with learning martial arts, many times, at least I've experienced this, where I'll see something, I'll say that that makes no sense to me whatsoever. And in a year, two years, three years, when I'm ready to accept it, I come across it again, or even I think about it, and we, maybe I rejected that a little too quickly. Maybe I should have considered that a little bit more, or maybe I should have explored it before dismissing it or, or you know, forming an opinion of it. Um, and I think that's that's part of the path is you're constantly in that reevaluation and, and reexamination and. Um... So going back to to questioning teachers, I think um, you mentioned Shuhari before, yeah, and we have mm -hmm. different stages. That's not just a technical learning stage, but it's a stage of how to conduct yourself too. Mm -hmm. uh, I, when I was in my early days, uh, I would never say anything. If my teacher said something, I just go, oh, right or wrong, whether I agreed or not, I just say, oh, later on, I would say, um, maybe this, I would just venture an opinion. And if they wanted to listen to me, that's, they talk to me, otherwise they just cut me down. That's it. Now I would say, sorry, sensei, I disagree. 
and leave it at that. If they want to know more, they'd ask. Otherwise, bang. But my teachers, they were great men, all of them, and they knew my mind before I knew it. Yeah, good, I, I a good said, coach will. I said once to my teacher about something, and I said, sorry, Sensei, um, I, I, I will do what you want, but I really disagree. And he mm -hmm. said, noted. Mm -hmm. It was a political question, and that was as far as I could go. And and he said, for him, that was a big that was a big thing for me to go that far. Sure. But it's because of that I maintain good relationships. Even though I've left the organization, I've maintained good relationships. And in the mm -hmm. end, it's the long it's a long game. It's about you know keeping good relationships with people you you respect, earning their respect, maintaining it, and then building your own character, your own reputation, whatever. Uh, and, and the Budo helps you walk those steps, walk those paths. And, and I guess to start wrapping this up, I think that that's where those, those virtues come into play. Um, when, those, when the virtues of whether you call it chivalry and, and from Europe or the virtues of Budo and with the Japanese, um, and I'm sure the Chinese have their virtues of their kind of warrior, scholar, class people, when those are in balance, you will have trouble walking the path. You will start to stumble. You'll start to uh, hit plateaus. You'll you'll get frustrated with your lack of ability to uh, keep walking. You're going to feel like you're stagnating, and usually it's because one of those virtues are are not being practiced or exercised properly. And to wrap it up. Um... I think we need to change the way we think about walking the path or walking the journey. Mm -hmm. There is no end. So Correct. there's no such thing that I'm going to get there before Tristan mm -hmm. or you're going to get there before me. Right. We're just walking and we're going to stop walking when we die. You might be Correct. there. I might be here, but it doesn't matter. If we think it's a race against someone else or something else or time, we lose all essence of it. We Great just point. We just That's very well here. said. Yeah. So, well, excellent. I think we've, I've covered a lot of what I want to do. I think this is a pretty deep topic. And, and as always, I, I love chatting with you and it was great having you on. It was a pleasure. Um, sorry if I went off on a tangent a couple of times or didn't quite explain myself properly, but, but some of the things I'm passionate about are quite hard to explain. And mm -hmm. people, um, Everyone listening to this, you know, it's okay to feel uh, that you've contradicted yourself, but avoid being a hypocrite. Yep, that's all we can do is to do our best. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you very much, Sensei, for being on the My show pleasure. again. It's been a delight to talk to you as usual. And everyone, I'm going to spruik the book. It's coming out soon. It's Budo the Art of Being, and it'll cure insomnia. <laughs> I look forward to it coming out. Uh, thanks, Tristan. Pleasure. You bet. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this discussion. Stay tuned for more episodes. I've got some great stuff on the way very soon. In the meantime, enjoy your training.